Welcome to episode five of the Via Emmaus podcast, where we'll be discussing the New Testament portion of this week's reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Let's go ahead and jump right in to Matthew 22, 34-39. Let's go ahead and read that. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend on all the laws of the prophets. So in Matthew 22, the Pharisees and Sadducees were asking questions of Jesus in an attempt to discredit him. But they, of course, were unable to do so. In verse 36, Jesus was asked, which is the great commandment? Jesus gave him two. First, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. How do these commandments relate to the Ten Commandments given to Moses? Right, like one of the things interesting about the law Mm -hmm. is just the way that, like the New Testament talks about it positively and negatively. Mm-hmm. Right there's fulfillment of the law, and yeah. there's also um, the law doesn't apply anymore. The law covenant doesn't apply anymore, uh, and I think we can fall off on one side of the horse or the other to get rid of all the law, right. or to like try to bring it over and continue to be under the law. Neither mm-hmm. one of those ways works. Yeah. So I, I think when we look at Matthew 22, uh, Jesus as he is debating with the Pharisees, um, he is. He is quoting from two passages of Scripture. Right? So just helpful uh, to see where he's quoting from. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, uh, which is the Shema. You know, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mm-hmm. Um, and in so many ways, if um, remember in Deuteronomy, you have the Ten Commandments that are listed out in uh, chapter 5. And then chapter 5 through 26 is then an exposition of the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. right? So what's Deuteronomy 6 doing? It's giving an explanation of that first commandment uh, that you should worship God and have no other idols, right? right. So another idols, second commandment, but you should worship God above all others. And in that way, um, we see that this is the very first commandment, but as the rest of the Ten Commandments work out, it moves from a vertical orientation to God to a horizontal orientation to, to love others. Right. right? And so uh, those commandments are set in negative terms, right? To, to not murder, to not commit adultery, to not bear false witness, um, to not covet. Uh, but in so many ways, there's a positive side of that too. And that's where Deuteronomy from chapter 6 on to 26 is really helpful. With it. Okay, if you don't murder, but what should you do? Mm-hmm. Well, you should love your neighbor. Right. Right. And so Leviticus, which is the other place that he picks that up, Leviticus 19 verse 18 is the other quotation here, is a summation uh, of how we are to treat uh, our neighbors. Right. And uh, so certainly in Israel, that would have been the covenant people in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, but as Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 10, Uh, It's not just those who are like us, uh, but the Good Samaritan shows a kind of love for neighbor that is greater than the priests or the Levites who are under the law are able to do. Um, So just picking up uh, passages from all over to kind of answer this, but the fulfillment of the law then is love. Paul will speak to that as well. And so I think the testimony from the New Testament 
is not that we're going to get rid of the old covenant law. Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He does that by perfectly obeying the law, then by coming under the curses of the law and paying the penalty for those whom he's going to save. Then as he's raised from the dead, he's going to write the law on our hearts so that now we have a desire to do those things. doesn't mean we do so perfectly, but it does mean that now I care about the law of God. I care about obedience to him. I care about his holiness and holiness in my life. And therefore, I want to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a unity of that. And then there is a love for neighbor as well. By God's grace, uh, he will work in my heart to be able to do that more and more. Wow. I love these next verses, uh, Matthew 21, 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord say to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, I'm not even sure if I really have a question here, but I just love how God operates in verse 46. Um, he did not, when they say that he, they did not dare to ask him another question, I mean, what can we take away from that? Yeah, so uh, they asked a question earlier, right? And I think we should read um, the passage here, Matthew 22, uh, in context with Matthew 21, okay. right? Because when Jesus comes in, Uh, to Jerusalem last week of his life, he enters the temple and he cleanses the temple. Mm -hmm. Uh, He begins teaching in the temple. And the question uh, to Jesus from the chief priests and the scribes was, what authority do you have to do these things? Jesus doesn't answer the question. He just lets it hang. Or Matthew, in his gospel, doesn't answer the question right away. Instead, he begins to just share the way that Jesus is going to curse the fig tree, Mm -hmm. uh, which is certainly a symbol in Israel of Israel. And as he cleanses the temple and curses the fig tree, there we should read those together. As he is bringing teaching into uh, the temple, as well as uh, some of these parables that he's talking about, uh, he's indicting the Pharisees and the leaders in Israel for wrongly uh, overseeing the temple. He's bringing judgment there. And therefore, they don't have authority in the temple uh, the way that the law gave them because they've been disobedient. Right? So one of the things Jesus is doing is he is going to bring judgment, the judgment of God, upon the um, leaders in Israel for their wicked sin. And at the same time, he's going to establish a new priesthood, a new temple, a new covenant. And therefore, he has this authority. Uh, and the authority given there, he goes back to Psalm 110. Uh, which is the psalm that speaks of a priest after the order of Melchizedek, yeah. speaks about the, the Lord, the son says to, or the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So it's David looking to his son as the Lord, and that's what he brings up and talks about the authority there. And when he asks the question back to the scribes and the Pharisees, they have nothing to say, right? Because Jesus is coming with an authority that is greater than what is given in the law. It is the authority of God, uh, that comes from his sonship uh, to, God, to God. Wow. Matthew 23, Jesus directly addresses how the leaders of the church, the scribes and the Pharisees, conduct themselves. Christ says they preach but not practice. 
He calls them hypocrites. He tells them that they work, that the work they do is to be seen so that they may be honored. In the past year, I believe we've talked about this uh, multiple times in, in our conversations. You know, is it important for us Christians, especially those who have callings such as preacher, teacher, worship leader, uh, guard against becoming prideful in our abilities? Yeah, I, I definitely think that it is. Uh, just again in context, Matthew 23 is addressing the Pharisees and the wicked leaders there in Jerusalem. Yep. So we should not make direct application to the church today, mm -hmm. but I think there's all sorts of ways that we can see what he's saying there that does apply to wicked hearts today. Yeah. Uh, and the truth is that any pastor, teacher, leader in the church is someone who has uh, seeds of wickedness just waiting to, to bear fruit uh, for evil. Mm -hmm. uh, and we need the grace of God to, to protect us from that, for the word of God to, uh, to convict us of sin and to continue to walk in obedience to him. Um, so certainly anyone that has been given gifts and one of the things about an elder in the church is that they are to be apt to teach, which means they have been given a gift uh, to be able to teach the people of God. Uh, and that lends itself to a certain kind of pride, mm. right? Now, it's not the only kind of pride. Mm -hmm. uh, there's all kinds of pride that is out there, but there is a kind of pride that is brought about there. right? So this is why it says in 1 Timothy 3 for elders not to be a recent convert. Right? Satan has a way of working on recent converts who are put forward too quickly. Yeah. It's a reminder to, uh, to others who have aspirations of teaching uh, to entrust themselves to others around them and not to exalt themselves too quickly. Um, it's a reminder to us just uh, how easily uh, we can deceive ourselves and the need for God's grace to continue to, um, to keep us humble. And uh, the Lord has a way of doing that. Uh, we are mm -hmm. to humble ourselves. Um, but the Lord also reminds uh, leaders and teachers uh, of their weakness. And uh, that's not to be fought against or denied, but to be embraced um, because it protects us uh, yeah. from pride. You know, it's funny you say that, uh, or you, it's funny that you answer the question in that way, because, you know, again, my son and I were talking uh, on, our, on our way home from a road trip this weekend. Mm -hmm. And we were just talking about, you know, a couple aspects of that. We were talking about uh, famous people mm. and you know, they have a lot of, you know, famous people and especially like musicians, like if you look at a musician in a concert, they're being worshipped in a sense. Mm, mm, and we're yeah. talking about how so many of them seem to be unhappy. Yep. Uh, a lot of them commit suicide. They have divorces, yeah. get into drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, and we, it was just a conversation. I don't even know if it really applies. Yep. But we were, just, we were just noticing that when people are worshipped for what they can do, very often they're very unhappy. And musicians talk about when they go home at night and the crowds are gone, how alone they feel. Yep. Because yep. their identity, as we talked about before, yep. is coming from what they can do versus who they are, yeah. and especially who they who they should be in Christ. No, the kind of worship that people attach to entertainers, musicians, athletes mm. will crush them. Right. Right. Because in our fallen humanity, there's no way that we can continue to perform and produce in such a way that will mm. continue to elicit worship. The only one that can be worshipped and not be destroyed by worship is Jesus, right. is God, because he is infinite in his glory, which means that he never runs out of stuff. I mean, stuff is the wrong word, mm -hmm. right? But he never is depleted in any sort of way. There's always more to know of him. And so our praise for him is always going to increase 
and he always has more to show us, right. to share with us. That's not true for me. That's yeah, not true for you. Not. That's not true for any yeah. one of us. So those who have a taste of glory, right, the honor that is given to them for success in something, at first it feels really good, but mm-hmm. then you have to do it again, right? We're on the precipice of um, Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah. By the time this podcast comes out, there will be a victor in L.A. or That's a victor right. in New England. And if it's Tom Brady again, I mean, you hear the testimony of him. He has said before, there's got to be something more than this. Right, yeah. Because there's no one who has more rings than him, more success, more accolades in football than Tom Brady and yet you hear him and he has to do it again. Right, yeah. And at some point his body is not going to let him do it again. That's right. And that glory that he has received is going to fade and fail. Mm-hmm. And those who put their trust in him or someone like him or anything else is going to fail. Yeah. Uh, and so ultimately um, it is a, a path to death to seek glory from others, to find our identity in the things that we do. And ultimately we are created uh, to be worshipers of the one true and living God and not to be those who are worshipped. So what you just said uh, reminds me, again, of another conversation that I had with my wife, Mary, yeah, yeah. and the conversation of the top. And what that means is is when you strive mm. to make it to the top. Yeah. And then so you have to do all this work. You know, you have to be better than everyone else yep. to make it to the top. Yep. And then once you make it to the top, you know, how do you stay on the top? Yep. And I think you said it right there. You got to do more and more, more, and more. because there are always other people That's who right. are trying to make it to the top. That's right. And the weight of that becomes Crushing. unmanageable. Like you said, you get crushed yep. by trying to make it to the top. Yep. You know, so so I, think, think, think about this, right? Because Jesus is not only God who is able to receive that worship. Right. And he never denies anyone from worshiping him, even in the Gospels when he's on earth. But as a perfect human, he, res- he displays to us a perfect model of leadership. You're right. And what does he do? He doesn't go to the top. Mm-hmm. He goes to the bottom. Oh, yeah. Right? And right. so he now is becoming the lowest of the low. And because he becomes the lowest of the low, God honors him by giving him the place above all. That's right. Right? And so I think there is something very valuable for us to imitate, and that is to say, my service or my leadership, my uh, role and authority that I have is to always go to the bottom, right? How do I serve? How do I get lower and lower and lower? Because when we do that, that's how God works through us. And then if there's any honor that is there, and Scripture speaks about giving honor to those whom honor is due, but we're doing so from the bottom and not the top. Right. Um, and as long as we continue to walk in that place of humility and remind ourselves that that is the way of Christ, then it is the pathway to glory. Because again, not only are we called to be worshipers of God who is full of glory, but there will be a day when we are raised to life with him and we will be glorified. Right. So there is that desire to be glorious that is mm-hmm. right, but only as we seek to move to serve mm-hmm. right and there is glory in the service and not in the success of getting to the top how many of the leaders you know that we consider the church leaders yep. um, whether it be in the old testament like moses or, mm-hmm. or the disciples in the new testament were seeking to be leaders mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it almost seems like you know god chose people who were yep. not seeking yep. because then they would be seeking glory for themselves yeah. versus having the heart to yeah. allow God to receive the glory that is deserved. That's a great, great, great point. Um, think about Moses. Mm-hmm. At age 40, 
he sees, okay, I think the position God has given me um, would lend itself to be a savior uh, for the people of Israel. Right. So what does he do? He's going to kill one Egyptian at a time. Yeah. Right. So he kills an Egyptian um, to protect the Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrews don't recognize him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pharaoh is mad at him. He has to run out of the country. This is a total failure of right. his, you know, saviorhood in himself. Forty years later, when he's been talking to sheep on the backside of the desert for, mm-hmm. you know, four decades, God comes and says, okay, now are you ready? And at that point, he's like, I, I can't speak. Right. right? I- I've got nothing, no ability to-, to do this. Whereas before, he had strength as someone who's able to save now he feels like he has no strength, and now he's ready to be used by that's God. That's right. That's exact. You put it in so much better words than that. Ah. <laughs> but that is exactly what I was trying to say. Well, it's, a, it's a pattern that, that crucifies our pride, crucifies our, our flesh, and yet it is the way that God raises up leaders uh, in the Bible and leaders in the church. And uh, it is good when we can embrace that. That's probably why we have to die to ourselves first. Yeah, that's right. So I'm going to jump down to verse 13, a little different subject when Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> well, he's talking about faith, right? Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the context uh, of that passage, um, Matthew 24, 13, is that where we are? Yes. Um, yeah, so he is talking about false prophets will rise and be many astray and because of lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will go cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So context there, I mean, Jesus has been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and when he comes, he says, repent and believe uh, in the gospel message that is there. And so the way of salvation is a faith that endures to the end. Right? It's not someone who checks a box, walks an aisle, does a few you know, laps in the church, and then I'm good to go but rather someone who so understands their place before God, their trust in Jesus Christ, that come, uh, whatever may come, they continue to hold fast in faith. Right. So this is one of those passages among many in the scriptures that speak of the fact um, that those who are saved have a faith that endures. Mm-hmm. And if that faith does not endure, in the end, it teaches us they never had a genuine faith. It yeah. might have been... They're something they worked up themselves or they were trusting in Jesus to get something else. But rather what happens with genuine faith is that we can lose everything else. And because someday we will lose everything else when we die, um, Jesus is the core uh, of all that we believe. Uh, and those who are saved by him, by his spirit, by his word, will endure to the end. Wow. He brought something else out in uh, verses 9 through 14. We were just looking at verse 13. Mm-hmm. But um, when it says, when Jesus says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Mm-hmm. So when I look at that, I've, you know, I've seen this, uh, I've read this scripture many times and I always wonder when I look at, uh, for example, TV evangelists who seem to be celebrated and loved by the world yeah. instead of hated by the world, as you know, is described here in these verses, mm-hmm. it always makes me think, man, maybe I should, uh, or maybe we should take another look at 
in this pastor or this person who is claiming to be a leader um, yeah. in the church before we uh, follow them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are many passages of Scripture that teach us that. Yeah. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week, uh, that this passage in Matthew 24, I think in these verses here, that you, then they will deliver you up to the tribulation and put you to death. Uh, he's speaking to his followers there. Right. right? Yeah. So again, we can easily kind of take that passage and run it to where we are today. Mm -hmm. But I think there's something particular about that time and place there uh, that begins to change when he comes down here to verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. It seems as though he's moving from the events that are taking place, these apocalyptic events yeah. taking place in the time of his cross and resurrection. And then later in verse 36 in Matthew 24, he's looking into the future. That said, uh, there's certainly scripture that speaks to the fact that we as church members and followers of Christ are to evaluate those who teach us and lead us, mm -hmm. right? Uh, our church is about to begin 1 Timothy mm -hmm. this Sunday. Um, and in that passage, you have in chapter 3 instructions for an elder to serve in the church. Uh, and it's given to the church. Right. So the church should be able to recognize what a faithful elder, faithful pastor looks like. Um, you mentioned TV evangelists, right? Mm -hmm. Who's their congregation? They may have a congregation that is there, but the farther out you go, right? right so now yeah. they have a television congregation. What kind of accountability is there? Right, yeah. right? Not to say that a TV ministry or a radio ministry or a podcast like this, if it goes beyond the walls of a church, is a terrible thing. But at the end of the day, a pastor has a unique relationship with his church. Mm. And a church has a unique responsibility to hold that pastor, hopefully pastors, plural, uh, in accountability. Mm -hmm. Right? So again, I think there are plenty of scriptures that talk about those things. But maybe the most helpful ones are passages like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Um, again, go back to the beginning here, and we see that there are certainly false teachers around the people of God. Get most carefully and uh, most closely in, in Matthew 23 and, and other places. Yeah, so I agree with you. I don't think that there's necessarily an issue with a, um, a pastor or a church that has a ministry that extends outside of the walls. I mean, we actually want that. Yeah. But I would say that if we have... For me personally, yeah. you know, I listen to, you know, I, I attend church here mm -hmm. at Aquaquan um, Bible Church, but I listen to um, other sermons and, and do other studies, uh, you know, with other people from different churches. But I have a home church. Yeah. And I'm right. responsible. Um, you know, I bring my family here mm -hmm. and the the lead, and I submit to the leadership here. Yep. So there still is, even though I, I may listen to, um, you know, a podcast or a sermon somewhere else, I, there's still a body that mm -hmm. I'm associated with. And I think that um, what you may be talking about is when you have these TV evangelists and there are people who solely watch on Sunday morning yep. an hour yep. of TV, but they're not accountable to a church body, you know, because I think it's so important because we have to be there to support each other, mm -hmm. to help each other grow, yep. sometimes reprimand each other if necessary. Yep. Yep. You know, all, the, all those good things that the Bible tells us to do in, yep. in regard to not forsaking the, um, the fellowship. That's right. Yeah. I mean, there's a blessing that we have in our information age and the digital age we have to be able to uh, share this content, this information, all of that. But again, it doesn't supplant the wisdom of God, yep. which is a group of, you know, um, diverse people gathering together around the gospel of Jesus Christ week in and week out, to live life together. That's God's plan. That's God's mm. wisdom. That's where we grow together. And there's something that if you are only getting content through the internet, 
uh, you may get a really big head, mm. uh, but your hands and your heart are, are not going to match that. And so right. we need the body of Christ. We need a local body of Christ to do life with. You two can't be our church. That's right. <laughs> exactly right. The rest of Matthew focuses on the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is there anything in particular to focus on here? Yeah, I think just when we're reading through the Gospels in general, um, it's a reminder to us that these are uh, books that are moving towards the cross, moving towards the death and resurrection of Christ. That they're not just giving us moral instructions and then, by the way, there's a uh, this event where Christ dies at the end. But like that's where everything is moving. And so in Matthew 20, we see. Um, the way in which he says that he is coming to not be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, right? Matthew 20, 28, Matthew 26, 28 talks about the new covenant uh, that he is going to establish in the blood or in his blood. Uh, this is for the forgiveness of sins. Um, we see all the events taking place um, leading up to that uh, where Jesus is uh, not a victim, uh, but rather he is laying his life down, mm. right? He is in so many ways. Um, as the son of David, handing himself over to the priests in order to be offered up as a sacrifice, right? And as a sacrifice, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. Uh, and then when he was raised on the third day, it is a testimony to the world uh, that, yeah, he didn't die for himself, mm. right? And now, because of his obedience to God unto death, he is given authority over heaven and earth, Matthew 28 says, and he is sending forth his disciples to make disciples, and 2,000 years later, here we are. Yeah. Right? Disciples of Jesus Christ in a different continent, a different language, a much different world, and yet with the same need. Yeah. Right? People who have uh, been saved by his cross and resurrection with a commission to tell others the good news of Jesus. What about Matthew 27, 51 through 54? I'm going to read these verses, but I wonder if you can help explain what's happening here. I'll start at 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to, appeared to many. When the satyrian and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Yeah, what is going on there? Yeah. Right? Uh, I think it's just a reminder that the event of Christ's death is more than just a saving act. Mm. Uh, it is also a cosmos-shaking act, right? That when God of heaven, Son of God, took on human form, like heaven and earth are going to change yeah. as a result, right? The gospel message is a supernatural message. Right? We talked in Genesis earlier about the angel of the Lord, mm. right? Like there are angels and there are demons, mm -hmm. right? There is a God who has made the world. And when he was crucified on the cross, like the world shook, right? right? So there is an apocalyptic reality that is taking place on the cross. I'm not sure we talk about that enough. Uh, and so we see that when he died, others are brought to life. There's all sorts of debates on what that exactly means, but I think Matthew includes it to say, look, something different is happening. Mm -hmm. There is a new world order that is taking place mm -hmm. so that in his death, there is now life springing out of the grave. And the final testimony then, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus was always God the Son, 
but it was in his death and resurrection in particular, he receives the title as being recognized as the Son of God, right? It's his resurrected glory that we see this um, authority, right? Again, Matthew 28 is going to say, all authority has been given to me. Well, if Jesus is God, didn't he have authority before? Mm -hmm. In one sense, he did. But in his humanity as a son of David, he did not yet receive the authority over creation. In many ways, Adam lost that, handed that over to Satan mm -hmm. because of his sin. Jesus comes in to defeat Satan. And in defeating Satan on the cross, now the Father rewards him on the third day with all heaven and earth. And now Jesus, from the throne in glory, is ruling over the world. doesn't mean that there is um, peace and joy and everything on it. There's all sorts of wars and rumors of war that are continuing on the earth today. Right. But we know whose feet the world is under. Right. And we know where it's going to go. And this begins in the death and resurrection of Christ. I don't think I've ever thought of it that way before in, in reference to um, at this point uh, in, in, in the story of Jesus that a new world order was established. And the reason why I say that is yeah. because you hear that phrase all the time now where I would say that the devil is trying to create or take back, um, you know, take back his, take back authority. Uh -huh. And he often uses the phrase New World Order. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, from the vantage point of the Old Testament, they were looking for a day when the Messiah would come, he would mm -hmm. establish his kingdom on the earth, the enemies would be defeated, and all would be well, Right. When Jesus comes, he teaches and says, yes, that is here, but it is not here, mm -hmm. right? And so if we think about it from the Old Testament, it looked as though they were in the present age and they were looking to the latter days, to the, the age to come. Mm -hmm. Jesus comes and he brings the age to come, but the present age remains. Mm -hmm. So it's like a Venn diagram, like the Visa card, right? right so yeah. the old world is here and the new world is here mm -hmm. and we're in the middle which explains why we can struggle with the flesh and the spirit, mm. right? It's not as though the flesh and the spirit, as Paul talk, are two parts inside of me, two ages, right? The flesh, which is fading away, and the spirit that is coming, making all things new, beginning with the resurrection of Christ, and one day we'll raise everything from the dead, make all things new, yeah. and there will be no more death, there will be no more of the old age, the new age will be entirely here, but until then, we're in the midst, yeah, and it begins here at the death and resurrection of Christ. Wow. So this week, we're going to start a new book, the Gospel of Mark. Is there anything to know that will help us read that book better? A um, couple things. Um, so it's the second of the three synoptic Gospels, right? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see a lot of similarities there, mm -hmm. some differences. Uh, most think that Mark is the first book written. Matthew and Luke are, are borrowing some of the things from him. Uh, there are other views to that, but that's one thing to see. Um, probably written in about the, the mid-50s. Peter is uh, the, the apostle who gives authority to Mark. So why do we receive these words in the New Testament? It's because the apostles have authority. They've been given that to speak these words. And so Peter knows Mark. And so Peter's words and his gospel are kind of behind uh, the, the gospel of, of Mark. Um, the style of Mark's a little different than Matthew. It's real punchy, it's really mm -hmm. fast moving, a lot of, you know, statements of immediately and then and yeah. now. And, uh, so it's kind of like a docudrama, mm -hmm. right? It's less of an elongated story and just kind of giving you snapshots of different things. Uh, but that being said, 
there are all sorts of ways that it is uh, intentionally writing the book together so that when we begin the book, we see that the heavens are split open mm-hmm. when um, God speaks uh, at Jesus' baptism. That same word of being split open is used again at the tabernacle, right. or not the tabernacle, but the temple, when the temple veil is torn, yeah. it's the same word, yeah. right? And so Matthew or Mark is really intentional to move us through the gospel, preparing us for the cross. And wherever we see Jesus talking about the cross and his death, he's also calling his people to follow him, mm-hmm. right? To pick up their cross and to follow. So uh, a lot of emphasis on discipleship in the gospel of Mark. Uh, so as you read it, keep your eyes uh, open for the cross of Christ. And then the ways in which he's inviting you uh, to, uh, to follow him in that path of death leads to everlasting life. This concludes our discussion of the New Testament portion of our reading plan. As you continue with your daily readings, if you come up with any questions that you would like me to ask David, please send them to viaemmaus at obc.org. You may hear responses in an upcoming episode. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.